Hebrews chapter 3, verse 13. And you, you're probably already familiar with that verse, because that's what we've been looking at the past few weeks. And it says, But exhort one another daily, while it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you this morning for your goodness. We thank you for your word. We thank you for its integrity, the fact that we can trust every word in your word. And we just pray that uh, this morning your, your spirit would teach us your ways and your truth, that you would use me for that purpose, and that we would grow a little bit more today than we were yesterday, that we might leave this place challenged to live further for you, we might glorify you and please you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I need to confess something before we start, and that is that I'm not a very good gardener. Most of you already know that I'm not a very good gardener. It's not something I particularly like to do. They tell me that when you get older, you probably get more of an affinity for the gardening things, but it hasn't happened yet, and I don't know if it's ever going to happen. Um, I think if God had created me first instead of Adam and put me in the garden to dress it and keep it, I probably would have killed most of the plants there for a week. Um, and it, but there's been various times in my life, and you, you've got to do it. You have to do it regardless of whether you like it or not. And there have been times in my life when I've gotten out of my hands and knees to do that weeding. You know, you go around, you work your way around uh, the front garden, those sorts of things. And there's one particular plant that I hate to work around. There's one particular plant that, that I just don't like. And it's inevitable when I work around this plant that I come away hating it even more. And it's a rose bush. It's inevitable. When I work around a rose bush, when I'm trying to weed around a rose bush, I get caught up in the rose bush. I come away with more holes in my hands and scratches on my arms and on my back. I've actually had times when, when a whole branch was, was, had grabbed it or attached itself to the back of my, uh, my clothes. And as I was trying to extricate myself, I scratched all my back as well. So I've, I don't have a lot of good experiences with, rose, with roses. And don't get me wrong, roses are beautiful flowers. They're absolutely beautiful. And when, when a rose bush is done nice, it's, it's gorgeous. And you know, it's, 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 uh, it's, it's got it's a beautiful uh, perfume and that. But we're not getting any rose bushes in our new home. All right? Just let you know. The thing is with a rose, if you grab a rose with your unprotected hand, you're in for a nasty surprise. And it's a thing of beauty, but it's also a thing of pain <laughs> if it's not handled wisely. And the reason I've brought that up as an illustration for you this morning is that sin is a very, very similar thing when you look at it. Sin presents itself as something of beauty as something that, of, you know, that, that can give you pleasure. But if you grasp sin, if one thorn doesn't get you on one side of that, that stem, a thorn will get you on the other side. It has a built-in thorn. Sin has many ways to surprise you, many ways to jab you. And today what we're going to do is continue to seek to understand how 
it works in people's lives, how it infiltrates, how it gets people going back to it again and again and again when, when there's only pain as a result. And last time we, uh, we caught up, last time we, uh, we spoke about this topic, we looked at the first place Satan attacks to break down your, our, um, our resistance to it. And it was, and it's a bit like convincing someone to take a glove off the first thing and to shove your hand in the middle of a rose bush. This is what he does. And the first thing that, that Satan does is he tries to attack God's character. Do you remember that? Because God is the ultimate, he's ultimately the most trustworthy being that we, that we know. He is trustworthy, he's honest, he's caring, he's loving. So when someone um, attacks his character and leaves you in a position to question his character, then he is no longer in a position to be worshipped by you. Because in your mind, he's no longer worthy of worship. Someone who is, someone who is worthy of worship needs to be higher in our estimation, needs to be perfect. And Satan tries to attack God's character and he did that in the Garden of Eden and he first started off doing that and he continues to do that. So when, someone, when he convinces someone that God is not trustworthy, that God is not honest, that God is not loving, that God doesn't care, which is what you hear a lot of arguments coming from atheists and all those sort of people. That God doesn't care. If there's a God, he doesn't care about us. If there's a God, how can he allow pain, pain and suffering? There's, there's arguments over and over again that attack God's character for the purpose of destroying a person's trust in him. And when you destroy a person's trust in God, you ultimately destroy a person's trust in his word. God's word can't be trusted. So as, as we have put our trust in God, we've also put our trust in his word. That's why we preach from it all the time. That's why we trust it, we read it, we, we, we learn from it. We trust its word to be true because we believe God is truthful. I'll say something, if you didn't believe God was truthful, you'd never believe his word was truthful because he's the author of it. So if someone attacks God's character, therefore it affects my trust in that as well. And that's Satan's plan from the beginning because if, if he can get someone in that position, then that person is now susceptible to any suggestion. When a person begins to mistrust God, they then must reject the worship of God. And ultimately, they need to replace that worship. You see, God, God made us beings that worship, beings that need to, to have something at our focus. So when a person removes God as that focus, as that pivotal thing in their life, they replace it ultimately with themselves. They become number one. They become the object of worship. You see, you can't trust anyone else, can you? Who can you trust these days except for yourself? So if God is out of the picture, he's not trustworthy, therefore the only one I can rely on is me, numero uno. Those of you who know some Italian out there. So they trust themselves, they begin to worship themselves. 
And without realizing it, without putting themselves on some sort of, a, of an altar, on top of a pedestal or whatever, they begin to worship themselves because when you put yourself first, you are ultimately worshiping yourself. And when you worship yourself, when you trust yourself, who are you going to go to for the truth? Who's going to know the truth? You do. And how do you know the truth? By your experiences. By the things you experience in life, by the knowledge which you've gained, becomes the truth. That's why it's so hard to argue with people sometimes. You have three people lined up with different who have in different parts of life or different experiences, they all believe they're right. To get them to agree is an almost impossible thing. But our society has done a very novel thing. Our society has said when it comes to religion, everyone's religion is, you can't argue it because it's all relative. That's what, that's what our society teaches today. That's why no one argues about religion anymore. They don't argue about it. They don't say, I'm right and you're wrong because apparently when it comes to faith... That's no longer applicable. You can't argue that something is right or wrong in religion. Everyone just got to get along because everyone's ideas are right anyway. It's only relative. My experiences, your experiences, his experiences and her experiences. We, we can't argue that one's better than the other one because when it comes to spiritual things, it's only about your experiences that matter. Which is a lie again. The problem is that those who have forsaken God and his word ultimately have to trust only themselves and their own instinct when it comes to life and things. And those same people are enticed and lured by sin more than any, any other person. They involve themselves in sin in deeper and deeper ways and, and the, the more they involve themselves in sin because it becomes part of their lifestyle, you see. It's their experiences now, now is the level of what's right and what's wrong. So if it feels good to them, it's a standard that they, they keep. If it doesn't feel, make them feel good, then they, they throw it away. So the standard is whether they feel good or whether they don't. When a person's been involved in the deeper sins, as we might say, they get harder and harder and harder towards the things of God. There is a downward progression, like that passage in Romans. There is a downward spiral that someone takes who is driven away from God, who has drives themselves away from God, seeking to be fulfilled by the things that are only in the world. They look to be fulfilled with things in the world to make, them, to make themselves happy. But it's just like a drug because... When people take social drugs, or um, what do they call them these days? Is it social drugs? Sorry? Recreational, Recre recreational drugs. That's a fantastic name. It's like a recreational. I'm staying at the park, isn't it? People take recreational drugs. And what do they take recreational drugs for? To make them feel good, don't they? It makes them feel good. But then, in, in feeling good, you might kill yourself because it's, you, know, you don't know what's in that thing anyway. But then... All it does is deaden the pain for a little while. It deadens the pain that the person is going through. The hate that they actually have for themselves and, and their own lifestyle. It deadens the pain. It gets them to forget about the real headaches they've got. 
And then it, when they come down, they feel worse than when they started. So they have to take more of it again just to get back up a little bit more. And that's, this pe- that's what people do, not just with recreational drugs. They do it with everything in life. They try to fill up their life with everything and try to find happiness in assets and money and wealth and power and their careers and their, and their entertainment, everything. Those things have to be, if they don't have them, they're not happy in life. But they're only a placebo. They're only something that makes you feel as if you're, you're happy. Let's continue today to look at our, the deceitfulness of sin. And how the, the, the author of Hebrews encourages us to lay aside every weight and the sin which doth so easily beset us. Why is it so easy to fall into sin? Why does the Bible say that? Because it's true. Sin is very, very appealing. It's like a rose. It's there in front of you. And you want to experience the rose, but with the rose there's pain that goes along with that, that you don't see. Turn to, to James chapter 1, verse 13. We'll start to look at a passage over here which helps to break it down for us how sin enters a person's life. James chapter 1 verse 13 to 15 says Let no man say when he is tempted I am tempted of God for God cannot be tempted with evil neither tempteth he any man but every man is tempted when he is drawn away of his own lust and enticed then when lust hath conceived it bringeth forth sin and sin, when it is finished, bringeth forth death. Okay? So there, notice the steps. It gives us very clear steps about how we fall into sin. We don't actually fall into sin. We chase after it. Or people chase after it. The first step is that you are drawn away. That's how it says there, when he is drawn away of his own lust. Drawn away from what? Because to be drawn... Away needs to be means to be to drawn drawn away from something, doesn't it? Turn to Deuteronomy chapter thirty, verse sixteen. Deuteronomy chapter thirty, verse sixteen says. In that I command thee this day to love the Lord thy God, to walk in his ways, and to keep his commandments and his statutes and his judgments, that thou mayest live and multiply. And the Lord thy God shall bless thee in the land, whither thou goest to possess it. But if thine heart turn away, so that thou will not hear, but shall be drawn away, and worship other gods and serve them, I denounce unto you this day that ye shall surely perish and that ye shall not prolong your days upon the land whither thou passest over Jordan to go to possess it. What were they drawn away to? They were drawn away to worship other gods to serve them. Okay. When a person is drawn away from God and enticed by sin, they become distracted by something. 
kids are kids are good at that. When you see them distracted, they'll have a game. They'll be they'll be playing with a toy or something along that line, and they'll see something else. And even though they 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 may have been happily playing with that toy, all of a sudden they start to gravitate to something else and forget totally that thing they had before. And people are exactly the same. People do the same thing. We are distracted. So you may be totally comfortable with something or doing something right and then all of a sudden something else comes along. Mark, people who do marketing understand that. People who do marketing know that if I've got an iPhone, right, an iPhone 3, who's got an iPhone 3 anymore? If I've got an iPhone, if I've got an iPhone 3, um, what they'll start to do is they'll start to make a bit of a fanfare about iPhone 4 coming out, right? So, but the iPhone 3 was, 3 was probably working quite well, there was nothing wrong with it, but hey, iPhone 4's got a better screen than iPhone 3. So I may have been happy with iPhone 3, but all of a sudden when iPhone 4 comes out, they start to do this. And they forget what they had before, because it ain't good enough anymore. And people do the same thing with God. People become distracted. You see, sin presents itself in a very beautiful way. It's attractive. It looks good. And people, instead of looking at God, and we know one of the, one of the sermons that's probably the most popular is to keep your eyes on Jesus, right? That's probably one of the most common sermons. And it's true because we need to focus on the Lord. Because when you take your eyes off the Lord, and when Peter took his eyes off the Lord, when he, Jesus called him out on the water, he said, come out. Peter says, you know, call me out on the water. I want to stand on the water with you. And Jesus says, yeah, come out in the water. So while he was looking at the Lord, he's okay. As soon as Peter started looking at what? His own feet. <laughs> he started to sink and Jesus had to help him up. But that's what people do all the time. We become distracted and that's what sin does. It first distracts you. But it's not the sin, it's actually your own lust. It's, what, it's what's already on the inside that causes you to look and to notice what's outside. Being drawn away is akin to the heart wandering because you've lost the, most, the sight of the most important fellowship that you have, which is with God himself. Most people who call themselves Christians today have lost sight completely of that relationship that fellowship, and they've replaced it with what we call a marriage of convenience. Ever heard of that before? A marriage of convenience. I'll give you a... Is a marriage, this is the definition, contracted for reasons other than the reasons of relationship or love. Instead, such a marriage is orchestrated for personal gain or some sort of strategic purpose, such as a political marriage. Most people who call themselves Christians who walk this world with that name, okay, have nothing to do with following Christ. They call themselves Christians, but it's done for another reason. It's done either as a national symbol, because everyone else is doing it. It's done because your family's done it already and you were baptised into it. Or some other reason, that you call yourself a Christian because... You believed in this historical figure called Jesus who lived 2,000 years ago and he was a holy man and he sacrificed himself for the world. But there's no relationship. There's no, there's no fellowship with God. It's a marriage of convenience. It appeases their conscience simply to say that they're Christians. I think a lot of people go to church today just to appease their conscience. 
It makes them feel good. They sin throughout the week. And because they come to church on a Sunday, they feel as if I'm doing something for God. So it, it appeases their own conscience a little bit. It, it deadens the pain a little bit. It's a bit like that placebo effect. They come to church only because it makes them feel a bit better. But coming to church is not meant to make you feel better. Coming to church is, is meant to be a worship of God. It's meant to be for Him and Him alone. And if you enjoy the fellowship with others around you, then that's the, one of the blessings, the side blessings that come with it. It isn't that if you hear most of the preaching today. You hypocrites. Well did Isaiah prophesy of you, saying, This people draweth nigh unto me with their mouth, and honoureth me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. But in vain they do worship me, teaching for doctrines the commandments of men. Most people in the world fit very comfortably in that category. Very comfortably. They follow the commandments of men, the desire, they, they chase the desires of their own heart and they call themselves Christians. You know, I've, I've spoken to a few Muslims. And one of the biggest stumbling blocks they have is they think that Australia is a Christian country. Because most people call themselves Christians here. And they say, how, could I, how would I ever become a Christian? He goes, I've seen what Christians do. They get drunk, they do, they do the most terrible things, they live lifestyles that are absolutely uh, horrendous. He goes, how would I, could I ever become a Christian? He goes, I'm living a better life. Is it, is, was he telling me the truth? Yeah, he was. He was telling me the truth. And it took me a long time to try to convince him that what he sees around him are not Christians. They're not. They're people who just call themselves Christians. But they defame the name of God at the same time. Notice James says that a person isn't just drawn away, but he's drawn away of his own lust. When we sin, can we say the devil made me do it? Can we say that? No, you can't. None of us can. None of us can go and sit before or stand before God's throne and say to God, the devil made me do it. Did God offer that as an excuse for Adam and Eve's sin? No. We can't offer the devil as an excuse for what we do or what anyone else does for that matter. The devil can suggest to you. The devil can trick. Yes, he's got his devices. He can use your own weaknesses against you. But he can never make you do anything. He can never make you and I do anything. He can't force you. At the end of the day, we have to answer for our own decisions and choices. We can't say one day that the devil made me do it and we stand before God in heaven. We can't say that someone else made me do anything. Because no one can make you do anything. No one can make you sin. When you sin, you're responding to something. You have a choice. We will be answerable for our own choices and not other people, including Satan or anyone else. Romans chapter 14, 10 says, But why dost thou judge thy brother? Or why dost thou set at, at naught thy brother? 
For we shall all stand before the judgment seat of Christ. For as it is written, as I live, saith the Lord, every knee shall bow to me and every tongue shall confess to God. So then, every one of us shall give account of himself to God. Do you see in there any provision for us making excuses for anything we do? No. There's no excuses. We can't say the devil made me do it. My circumstances made me do it. I wasn't brought up in a happy home. I had bad parents. I had bad friends who, who led me astray. There is no excuse that God offers or allows any of that. We give an account of ourselves. The lust within ourselves draws us away from God and is naturally attracted to sin. Now, there isn't just a drawing away from, but there's an enticing to. Okay, So when you're draw, drawn away from God, you're enticed to something else. And the word entice means to attract or draw toward oneself by an exciting hope or desire. To tempt, to allure. You are enticed. The next one is you are enticed to sin. How is a person enticed to sin? Turn to 1 John chapter 2. First John chapter 2 verse 15 says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Okay, let's just stop there for a sec. These are two mutually exclusive things. If you love God, you can't love the world. If you love the world, you can't love God. You can't be doing both at the same time. They are mutually exclusive. Either you're showing love to one, or you show love to the other. When one is drawn away from loving God, where does he naturally love? The world. Okay? So there's, there's two different things. If one is enticed away from God, if his lust enticed him away, he's naturally drawn to the world. Because that's it. That's the two options you've got. You love God or you love the world. But while one loves the world, it's through certain things associated with the world with which one sins. And those are the avenue which with, with, uh, with which the world um, works and operates. Look at verse 16. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. These are the three critical areas through which sin entices people. These are the avenues through which sin can enter and through which we are susceptible. Okay? The lust, let's start with the lust of the flesh. The lust has one desire. Sorry, the lust of the flesh has one desire to be fed. It wants to be fed, it wants to be nourished. Okay? The desires of the flesh are listed in Scripture. And what it feeds on are certain things. Turn to Galatians chapter 5, verse 19.
Galatians 5.19 says, and these, I want you to pay attention to this. These are the works of the flesh. This is how the flesh works. Okay? And it says, And the works of the flesh are manifest, which are these. Adultery, fornication, uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry, witchcraft, hatred, variance, emulations, wrath, strife, seditions, heresies, envyings, murders, drunkenness, revelings, and such like, of the which I tell you before, as I have also told you in time past, that they which do such things shall not inherit the kingdom of God. Okay. These are the works of the flesh. These are the things the flesh involves itself in. To do what, though? What's it trying to gain by adultery? What's it trying to gain by fornication, by uncleanness, lasciviousness, idolatry? What's it trying to gain? Look at these in a sec. Notice they're the works of the flesh. You know when you work for something? You're hoping to achieve something at the end, aren't you? You're hoping to gain something. What is the flesh hoping to gain? Let's look at the lust of the eyes. Turn to Matthew chapter 6, verse 22. Matthew 6, 22 says, The light of the body is the eye. If therefore thine eye be single, thy, thy whole body shall be full of light. But if thine eye be evil, thy whole body shall be full of darkness. If therefore the light that is in thee be darkness, how great is that darkness. No man can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will hold to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and mammon. Okay? Interesting how he puts those, he links those two things together over there. But basically, what's he saying here? I mean, if, if is he saying that the, the, the eye is an evil thing or the eye is a good thing? Well, you know, you know how some people see the glass half full and some see it half empty? Okay, it's the way you see things that makes the difference. Some person can look at a, uh, at a female, a man can look at a female to lust after her. Another man might look at the same female and see a friend. Do you understand what I'm saying to you? You can see, Different people can see the same object and see it in very, very different ways. Some people see, when they see the things of the world, they're seeing it through heavenly eyes. They're seeing it through God's perspective, you might say. When other people see the same things in the world, they're seeing it through the world's perspective. The way your eye sees, what you see, what you're naturally attracted to with your eyes and how you view that thing tells a little bit about what you're like inside. How much light there is inside. Okay? So the eyes, we have the lust of the flesh which needs to be fed. We have the eyes which, are, which go looking around for things which naturally feed the flesh as well but which are seeking things. And, and tell you about what, they, what the sort of light is inside you, whether it's darkness or whether it's light. And then finally, there's the pride of life. Pride of life. You know, pride is an amazing thing when you look at it. Pride is an absolutely amazing thing. It builds up a man's heart or opinion of himself in a way that sometimes he's completely unaware of. 
A person can be very proud, but be totally unaware that they're actually a proud individual. It works through every decision the person makes. It influences, it colours, it taints, it, it distorts the way they see things because everything then becomes uh, an image of themselves. Everything affects them personally. So pride then affects everything that you do in life. And it only acknowledges self. Pride only acknowledges the self as the pinnacle. And it fits together so perfectly with this idea of worshipping yourself. But do you know why Satan fell? The Bible says that Satan fell because iniquity was found in him, but his pride was lifted up because that pride, he could see only himself. And he wanted to be sitting on a throne where God was sitting. That pride was his downfall in the end. And that pride is the same thing that infests men today. Men who think, and women, who think that they can live independently of God. Isn't that pride? When the person thinks they can walk separately to God? The God who gives them the very bre every breath that they breathe. Everything that they, they have. He can withdraw his spirit from them at any moment. And they'd be dead, a corpse. But yet they feel as if they are their own God and they can walk independently of God. So if they're independent of God, then they need to worship themselves. And that's what pride is, a worship of self. The three, these are the three areas of attack of man's being. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes and the pride of life. These are our inherent weaknesses. And the devil uses those weaknesses against us time and time again. He knows. He knows how we're made. He's been around long enough that he knows how to influence those things and use those things against us. He did it in the beginning. Even with Eve, he did it. Look at Genesis chapter 3, verse 6. Genesis 3, 6 says, 6 says, And when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, and a tree to be desired to make one wise, she took of the fruit thereof, and did eat, and gave also unto her husband with her, and he did eat. The woman saw that, hang on a sec, she saw that the, food was, the, the tree was good for food, that it was pleasant to the eyes, and... A tree to be desired to make one wise. Pleasant for food. She'd feel her flesh. Pleasant to the eyes. It was affecting the lust of the eyes. And it was going to make her as smart as God. The pride of life. The devil knows how to attack. He did the same thing with Jesus. In the wilderness, he attacked, he attacked him through those avenues as well. When he said, he knew he was hungry. And he said, why don't you turn those stones to bread? What was he trying to appeal? His flesh wanted to be fed. When he took him up to the pinnacle and said, throw yourself down, Jesus would have been so weary. He could have just simply fallen off 
that high on top of the temple. And he knew that the, Jews, that the angels would have, uh, would have caught him. What was he appealing to? He knew when he brought him up to the top of the mountain and he showed him the kingdoms in the world and says, I can give you all these kingdoms. You can be sitting on a throne right now. Rather than doing what you're doing now, going through all this pain and suffering, I can give you all this power. He affected him the same. He didn't affect him because Jesus knew exactly how to fight back. And we can, we can look at that at another stage. But he attacked him in the same angles. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life. What does sin promise? I'll give you two things, right, today. Sin promises. You know how the, the flesh wants to be fed? Why does it involve itself in all these different types of sins? Because it wants to be fed with pleasure. It wants to be pleasured. When you're God, you deserve to be made happy. When you're made to feel good, that is your, um, it's your right to be made to feel good with pleasure. Look at Hebrews chapter 11, verse 24. Look at two things that, that, that sin offers through those different avenues. Hebrews 11.24 By faith, Moses, when he was come to years, refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season. Alright? He chose to suffer by identifying himself with God's people, rather than identifying himself with the Egyptians, okay, who were worshipping false gods and doing things they weren't meant to be doing, and enjoyed the pleasures of sin for a season, he could have had a very, very enjoyable life. He could have enjoyed all the delicacies and the riches of Egypt, but he chose not to. You know something? If sin were not so pleasurable, it would be a lot easier to get people to forsake it. It'd be a lot easier to convince people that it's bad. But when it feels good, it becomes an altogether more difficult proposition. Because sin is pleasurable for a season. That means for a limited time. Okay? It lures men to their death. There are so many examples. You'd probably think of a hundred yourself without, without worrying about it too much. Drugs, both recreational, pharmaceutical. Sex, outside of marriage. Gossip about other people. Does gossip make you feel good? Of course it makes you feel good. Gossip is pleasurable because it puts someone else down and it lifts you up. Bad company and friends. Drinking alcohol. Smoking. You can go on and on and on. Those things are pleasurable. And they offer pleasure for a time. But then there's a consequence to pay at the end of it. Even old sailors had legends of mermaids, didn't they? I mean, the legends of mermaids. The mermaid would sing a, such a beautiful song. 
that mesmerised the sailors and they, they couldn't help but go to the mermaid. But when the mermaid got a hold of them, the singing was over. <laughs> it was all over for the sailors. It's a bit like, and sin is like a, a, a you know what a Venus flytrap is, don't you? The fly is attracted to the nectar or the, the fragrance inside the trap. The fly wants to be fed. The fly likes the fragrance. The fly enters into the Venus flytrap and the fly does not escape the Venus flytrap. And that's exactly what sin does. It lures, it promises pleasure. And then it traps and slowly digests. Sin traps men in like circumstances. And though it offers pleasure for a season, it always, and I repeat, always has a trap at the end of it. A sting in its tail. An effect that lingers on. Once in there, once in its clutches, you are slowly digested. When David fell with Bathsheba, What was he chasing, if not pleasure? <clears throat> the other thing that, that sin offers, turn to Matthew chapter 13, verse 20. This is the, um, the parable of the, um, the sower. Good verse 20. Matthew 13, 20. But he that received the seed into stony places, the same is he that heareth the word, and anon with joy receiveth it. Yet hath he no root in himself, but dureth for a while. For when tribulation and persec or persecution ariseth because of the word, by and by he is offended. He also that receives seed among the thorns is he that heareth the word and the care of this world and the deceitfulness of riches choke the word and he becometh unfruitful. The other thing that, that sin offers you is power and influence and security. It offers you security through things such as money. Right? People chase money their whole lives thinking that the more money they have, the more secure they are. The more money they have, the more assets they have, the more stable they are, and, and, and hopefully it'll, it'll put them in good stead. The riches of the world promise pleasure, power, and security. You can influence more people with money, can't you? You can do more things with money. You have options. But we know that's, that's a bit of a, um, that's a lie. 1 Timothy 6.17 says, Charge them that are rich in this world that they be not high-minded, nor trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who giveth us, us richly all things to enjoy. Trusting in riches for security is another thing that, that sin does. It offers you security. It offers you 
influence and power. 1 Timothy 6.9 says, But they that will be rich fall into temptation and a snare, and into many foolish and hurtful lusts which drown men in destruction and perdition. For the love of money is the root of all evil, which, while some coveted after, they have erred from the faith and pierced themselves through with many sorrows. But thou, O man of God, flee these things and follow after righteousness, godliness, faith, love, patience and meekness. Sin entrances a person to believe that it offers them, that money and wealth offers them pleasure and security. Sin offers pleasure. Sin offers power, influence and security. James chapter 1 verse 15 then goes on to say that when lust conceives, it brings forth sin. Conceives. That's a... Conceives is like a, uh, a maternal thing. When the lust that's within a person meets the thing that's enticing them and they join together, sin is conceived. Lust without the object cannot conceive. But when those two things meet, then sin is born. Thus, when lust hath conceived, it bringeth forth sin. When the desires of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, the pride of life, have set before them, like a delicious meal on a table, the pleasures of sin and power and influence of money and goods of this world, then, when, when that's been eaten, just like the fruit of the garden in Eden, then sin is produced. The fruit that was the object of, of desire, the eyes, the flesh, the inner pride were aroused so that the union took place. And when the union takes place between desire and object, sin is born. It's as simple as wanting a piece of cake, but knowing that you're allergic to cake and it gives you a stomach upset, right? Who's allergic to some type of food, but they love it? Right? Any examples? Come on. You've all got weaknesses out there. Chili. What is it? Chili. Ch- chili. chili. So you, you like your chili, but you know when you have chili, it's, you're not going to feel good after. Right? Okay. Well, it's the same sort of thing. It's wanting something, but at the end, it's going to hurt you. And that's what sin does every time. It might look appealing. It tastes good. It'll give you pleasure. It'll even give you security. It'll promise security. So you go, people, that's why people go chasing after money, right? Because they they, they want security. If they haven't got it in God, they're going to find it, try and find it somewhere else. But at the end, it all falls apart. The whole thing falls apart. It gives you pleasure for a season and then it makes you pay big time after. And the more you're trapped, the more you die as a person. Because you're chasing after things that are death themselves, that cannot satisfy, that end in death. When sin is finished, it bringeth forth death. It brings forth death. It's the result. If Philip eats a a bucket of chilies 
We're not going to see Philip the next day. Romans 6.23 says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. The promise of eternal life through Jesus our Lord commencement commences the moment we begin to walk with him and not in the flesh. When we follow him and not the desires of the heart. When we realise that the lust of my flesh, the lust of these eyes, and the pride of my life is only going to lead me to death. And the only one who offers me life is him. Because he gave his life for me. Turn to 2 Peter 1.1 1, 1, as we just close up. How do we fight these things? How do we deal with the lusts that are already within us? 2 Peter 1.1. 1, 1. We're not going to look at it too deeply. This is going to be next week we look at it. But Simon Peter, a servant and an apostle of Jesus Christ to them that have obtained like precious faith with us through the righteousness of God and our Saviour Jesus Christ. Grace and peace be multiplied unto you through the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, according as his divine power hath given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness, through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises, that by these ye might be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. Okay? How do we overcome these things? It's understanding the promises that God's given you. It's understanding that God has given us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. God just hasn't given us eternal life. God has granted us godliness as well in this life and we have everything we need to live that life to resist the flesh to not be lured in by sin to not be so easily distracted from our fellowship with God God has given us everything we need and how is that everything? well verse 3 says through the knowledge of him that hath called us to glory and virtue. Our relationship with Jesus Christ is the most important thing that we have. It's the most precious thing that we, we, we have. There is nothing that should even compare to it. How you nurture that relationship, that fellowship, will determine how quickly you walk away from it. If that relationship is strong, you won't be distracted by the silly things of this world and the sins that offer you pleasure for that long. Because you know you're, you're going to break his heart. But if the relationship is weak, you'll be distracted. You'll be lured. Your own lust will drive you away. Will draw you away and entice by everything that's around. Have, first of all, you obtained the precious faith that Peter's talking about here. Because if you haven't obtained that precious faith and escaped the lusts of this world to walk with Jesus Christ as your Lord and Saviour, that's the first thing you need to do. 
You need to follow him. We need to forsake the world and follow him. If you haven't met him yet, if you haven't given your heart to him, if you haven't trusted him fully with your soul, then that's the first thing you need to do. And if you have met him, if you have walked with him, then are you walking with him now? Or have you strayed? Is the path you've taken going in two different directions? Then you need to get back with him. You need to not be distracted by the, the foolish things of this world that are dying and will be destroyed. And we need to stick close with him, following him every step of the way. Have you escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust? If you haven't, then you need to look unto Jesus. You need to fix. Our eyes need to be single. Our eyes need to be focused. We can't be distracted by the things of this world because there isn't much time. We don't have much time left. Jesus could be coming back today. Are you ready for him? If you're not ready for him, make yourself ready before you leave those doors today. He could be coming back. And then what will you have to show? And if you're not saved, where will you be left? What will you have? Will you be content with the things of the world? They'll be soon destroyed. But only those who walk after Christ will live on forever. God bless you. Thank you.